Well, good morning, church. As we slowly open a little bit more during these days on this September the 13th, we're glad you're here or you're joining us through the live stream. Um, a couple of things. First of all, thank you for wearing your mask and observing social distancing. As we meet, we want to be careful to do the right thing. And by wearing a mask, we're showing that we have a concern for our neighbor and a love for them. The second thing is we... Uh, you guys have been incredibly good and faithful in your giving. The last few weeks, the last three weeks, we've, dro we've dropped off a little bit in our giving, so I encourage you to pray about what the Lord would have you to give to support the ministries as we go forward. I have been in Matthew, excuse me, in Luke chapter 17 and following, and we're in Luke 18, but I'm going to go to a parallel passage regarding the rich young ruler. And the primary passage will be Mark chapter 10. So today I'll be in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and following. Hear the word of the Lord. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not lie, do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and he said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the word of the Lord. Well, the last two weeks, we've been discussing little children who came to Jesus, brought by their parents, placed in his arms, that he might bless them. And the disciples pushed back and said, the little children aren't important enough. The teacher's way too busy to mess with little children. And Jesus was indignant and rebuked the disciples and said, let the little children come to me because to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And then he said this, unless you too receive the kingdom like a little child, you will not get in. And I said last week that Receiving the kingdom like a child means that we receive it in meekness and humility and a helpless state. We can't pull it off. You've got to do it. We come to him in weakness and humility. Well, now we have the polar opposite in this encounter, the very next encounter, with a man who is a rich, young ruler. He's called rich in this passage. In Luke, he's called a ruler. And in Matthew, he's called young. So he's the rich, young ruler. In other words, if you're a headhunter or if you're a recruiter, this is a five-star recruit. This is the first-round draft pick. This is what you want everyone to be. 
He was rich, I believe, very likely. He inherited his wealth because he was very young. And he uses the word inherit, so it's on his brain. So he's, he's rich, he's young, he's strong, he's at the top of his game physically. And he is a ruler, which means that he was one of the leaders of the synagogue, which means that he was in the socially elite circles. He was one of the, those guys you'd open the paper and see, you know, as far as social meetings, he was there with other people smiling at a fundraiser, but he was a rich, young ruler. And he was a man that really was a great guy. He comes to Jesus and he says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know what you've got to do. You know what the rabbis would tell you to do. He says, you, and Jesus quotes commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and then goes back to 5. He says, you should, you should murder. You should commit adultery. You, you shouldn't steal. You shouldn't lie, and you shouldn't defraud, which is a subset of coveting. You shouldn't fraud people. And go back to number five, honor your father and your mother. And he said to Jesus, teacher, these I have kept since I was bar mitzvahed at the age of 13, since I became known as a man. Since my youth, I have kept these things. And he was serious. He was the type of guy that would have been a great neighbor, a great guy to hang out with, and yet, as you read the text, we'll come back to this, there was something missing in his life. He had it all together. He had the world on a string. He had the world in his pocket. He had it all together. But something was missing in his life. So let me give you the thesis of where I'm going today. This passage is not primarily about being wealthy. It is about how wealth and youth and social standing can insulate us from the freeing, liberating glory and goodness of Jesus. It's not about wealth exclusively or even, I think, primarily. It is about how, how wealth and how youth and how social elitism can build barriers around us. The Bible doesn't say that wealth is wrong. The Bible says the misuse of wealth is wrong. Jesus says with great clarity, you can't serve God and money. Paul says with Syrian insight in 1 Timothy 6, command those who are rich in this present age not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who graciously gives us all things for our enjoyment. So it is, it is the misuse of wealth that is the, 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 the problem in Scripture. So point number one, niceness can insulate us from the goodness of Christ, being socially accepted. C.S. Lewis says it so well. This is what he says. I'm just going to read the paragraph in mere Christianity, he says, one of the dangers of having a lot of money is that you may be quite satisfied with the kinds of happiness that money can give and so fail to realize your need for God. If everything seems to come simply by signing checks, you may forget that you are at every moment totally dependent upon God. Now, quite plainly, natural gifts carry with them a similar danger. If you have sound nerves and intelligence and health and popularity and good upbringing, you are likely to be quite satisfied with your character as it is. And you may say, quote, 
Why drag God into this? Question mark, close quote. A certain level of good conduct comes fairly easily to you. You are not one of those wretched creatures who are always being tripped up by sex or alcoholism or nervousness or a bad temper. Everyone says you're a nice chap. And between ourselves, you agree with them. You are quite likely to believe that all this niceness is your own doing and may easily not feel the need of any better kind of goodness. Often people who have all these natural kinds of goodness cannot be brought to, to realize and recognize their need for Jesus at all until one day the natural goodness lets them down and their self-satisfaction is shattered. In other words, it is hard for those who are rich in this sense to enter the kingdom of heaven. Being rich in being wealthy, being young and at the top of your game, or being socially elite. You see, niceness defines our culture. It just defines who we are. We are nice people. We just, we get by. We're just, we're nice. But niceness insulates you from the incredible need you have for a savior from day to day. We even make niceness a survey poll. I've been, for the last couple of years, I've been reading surveys about the nicest states in America and those who are the most unnice or unfriendly. So we'll do the bottom five just for, just for information. The bottom five unnice states are, number one, what do you think? New York. New York. I don't offend you, but I think that's a pretty easy question, though, New York. New York. Number two is, you'll never get this, Arkansas. Arkansas. I, I don't get that, but I will let that go. Number three, Delaware. Number four, um, I think New Jersey, something like that. The nicest states. We'll start at number six, Indiana. Number five, Oklahoma. Four, Texas. Three, South Carolina. Two, Tennessee. One, Minnesota. In fact, there's even, there's even a phrase called Minnesota nice. I've heard for years. Just nice people. Now, here, here, here's the problem. The problem is that niceness, a plasticity, just kind of a veneer, keeps us from the beauty of Jesus. Because we run around telling each other, you're nice, you're good, you're fine. We read our press clippings, we're okay, we're okay, we're not involved in this, we're not involved in that, so we must be nice. And in fact, there's a term called defining deviancy down, used in 1992 by a wonderful senator named Moynihan from New York, Daniel Patrick Moynihan. And what he says is that, is that when you study the life of our country, that in periods uh, from time to time, we'll say, well, this is a good citizen, but then we ratchet it down and down and down. He says, and we've come to the point, this is 1992, when we have defined deviancy so low that we don't even have a standard for bad behavior anymore. So just be very careful because this doesn't change. Cultural standards change. And niceness can be a great insulator from seeing the glory of Jesus. So this, this issue of, 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 
of, of wealth. This man was not using his wealth to browbeat and manipulate people and defraud people. Some people do use their wealth in that way. For example, James chapter 2, verse 6 says, are, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So th these are bad people. Chapter 5 is even more serious. He says, come now, you rich, you weep and, and howl for, you, for the miseries that you are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted you and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord God Almighty. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence, and you have fattened your hearts on the day of slaughter. You have conducted or condemned and murdered the righteous person, and, and he says, you know, these people should be condemned. They're not, they're, they're wealthy. They're not paying their labors what they deserve. They just live in luxury and arrogance and pride. That is not this guy. Listen, this guy, if he was, if he was a leader in the synagogue, he tithed. He gave a tithe of his money to help people and to support the synagogue. But still in his heart of hearts, the wealth had corroded his spirit. Niceness can be a hurdle to seeing the beauty of Christ. Now, there's a survey that was released recently. It was on the Gospel Coalition website in August. This survey conducted by the Cultural Research Center at Arizona Christian University. And they did an exhaustive survey about what Americans believe especially those who go to church and have a whole subset. And one of the questions was this, do you believe that God gives his approval or salvation to people who really try their best? Something like that. Now, that was the question. Among evangelicals, this is where niceness is the pox. Among evangelicals, that question, let me, let me give you multiple options. So, so throw up the, the, the options. So what percentage of evangelicals uh, said yes to that. Now, before I say that, I saw somebody between services and he said, man, when you asked the question, I was thinking maybe three, maybe five, and then you put that up and I went, oh, my soul. So do, do you believe that, hear the question, God grants his salvation to people who really try hard to be the best they can be? Okay. Was it, who says 17%? Raise your hand. Okay. Don't be bashful. All right. Who says 27% or 26%? Raise your hand. Okay. Right. Who says 41%? Okay, first of all, I am really shocked that you said 41%. Because I would never have said 41%. I also have to tell you that you're right. I, I read this and I'm going, you've you, 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 you got to be kidding me. I mean, evangelists are people that supposedly believe the Bible and hear the gospel. 41% have just missed the gospel? 41% are heretics. That's, that's, that's the deepest heresy, in my opinion, maybe outside of a denial of the character of God. But that, that is a deep... I mean, I'm, so, so understand, niceness doesn't save you. 
It's only the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It's only the shed blood of the Savior that saves us from our sin. So, so please hear that. And, and so if you're ever asked that, that question and, and, you, and you believe that nice people make it outside of the mercy of God, please understand, first of all, you're a heretic. And secondly, please don't tell them you go to church here. You know, please. Because that's not what we want to ever be about. So, so the first point is that, that niceness can insulate us. Number two is a lack of self-awareness can insulate us. So you, you, the, the guy stood back and he, Jesus says, you know the commandments. Don't, don't murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, defraud on your father and your mother. And he says, Lord, I've kept this, teacher, I've kept this since I was a young man. And, 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 and really what he was saying is on a very perfunctory level, I have, I've been able to do this, and I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not riotous. I'm not the, like the prodigal son. I'm, out, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. He had, he had not heard the Sermon on the Mount. Because in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus says this regarding murder. He says, the law of Moses says you shall not murder I tell you that if you are angry with your brother and in really in your heart, basically, you call him a blockhead or a fool, you have broken the sixth commandment. And everybody's done that. The law shows us our need for a savior. He says, and the seventh commandment, and I'm trying to keep this PG-13, but there is a group of people in the day of the Lord called the Hillel School who said there's a lot of things you can do with a young woman before you have intimacy with her, so it's no big deal. And Jesus says, forget that. He says, I tell you that if you look at a, at a woman and you have carnal appetites in your heart, you have committed adultery. And everybody went, you're kidding me. And then he says later in Matthew 7, he says, you know, you, you, all of you have beams sticking out of your eye, and yet you're condemning people that have specks of sawdust in their eye. First get the beam out of your eye, then get the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye. See, see the, the, the law was meant to bring us to the place of saying, I need a Savior. John Calvin begins his institutes. Calvin died in 1564, I think the same year Shakespeare was born. So John, John Calvin said this, he said, we must be so stung by our own unhappiness that we are coerced to seek the face of God. And as long as you go through life saying, I'm a nice guy, God grades on a curve, nice people make it, you will never come to the gospel and you will never embrace Jesus and you'll never go for broke. And that's one of the sad realities of church life. There's a church in the book of Revelation that receives a letter. There are several churches that were given letters. And there's a church at Laodicea. And when the Lord writes a letter to this church, he doesn't say to this church, you're heretics, you're idolaters, you're immoral, you've believed false doctrine. He doesn't say any of those things. The only thing he says by way of disregard to this church is you're proud and you're arrogant and you're full of yourself. In other words, they could be wonderful people, but they just think they've got it all together. And he says this, Revelation 3, verse 15, I know your works. 
You are neither cold nor hot, whether you were either cold or hot. So, so, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say in your arrogance or your niceness, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. It says this in verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Be zealous and repent. In other words, work up your courage and repent because we see, when we repent, we tap into the goodness of God. We tap into his mercy. You see, a lack of self-awareness builds barriers. Number three is Jesus rips through barriers like that. Thanks be to God that by the power of the Spirit, thank you, Lord, that you expose layers of insulation and you say, repent. You know, look at this passage. Jesus could have said to the guy, the rich young ruler, man, I'm so glad you're here. I know you give a tithe. I know you're going for it. I know you want to be a moral guy. Come on, join my team. But he doesn't say that. He puts his finger on that area in his life where he's built idols and built barriers and says, you know, you love money too much. So what you need to do is you need to get, divest yourself of your money, give it to the poor, follow me. And when you do that, you'll have treasures in heaven and you'll have more joy than you can understand. Well, I, think of, I think of the way Jesus blows through barriers. In a few weeks, we'll study a guy named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus great story, Zacchaeus was a very wealthy chief tax collector. So, so he's a chief tax collector, which means he's hated by his fellow Jews because he works for the Romans. He's pocketed a bunch of money, and he is wealthy. And this wealthy chief tax collector that the Jews hated heard Jesus was coming, and so he climbed up in a tree so he could see the teacher. And as the teacher walked under the tree, Jesus says, Zacchaeus, come on down. We're going to go to your house, and we're going to have a big feast. Zacchaeus climbed down, and the, the, this is, I'm, okay, I'll tell you, I'm just reading into scripture here. But just, so, but they had to walk, maybe it was a kilometer, maybe two kilometers, maybe three, three kilometers to the home of Zacchaeus. And as they walked, I believe, they had a conversation. That probably went something like this, Zacchaeus, you're a wealthy chief tax collector. You've defrauded people. You've abused people. You've used your privilege to line your pockets. If you're going to be part of my kingdom, you've got to be serious about doing the right thing. And they get to the house, and out of, out of nowhere, they're having this big banquet, and Zacchaeus stands and he cries out, Lord, I'm giving away half of my income, and if I've defrauded anybody, and he had, I will give them four times what they lost to me. And Jesus says, today I rejoice because salvation has visited this home. You see, Jesus could have said to Zacchaeus, you know, Zacchaeus, let's talk and let's get it together. And wouldn't No, he said, Zacchaeus, come on. The woman, Samaritan woman in John 4, the Jews hated Samaritans. You know the story, they hated Samaritans because they were idolaters who abandoned Judaism and you didn't talk to Samaritans. If you were a Jew, if you were a Jewish man, you wouldn't dare talk to a Samaritan woman and Jesus did. And he's talking to this woman about the fact that he is the living water and he says to her, go and call your husband. And she says, um, 
I'm, I'm not married. He said, you're right. You're not married to the guy you're living with. And your five previous husbands are no longer in your life. In other words, she was an immoral woman. Immoral woman. He could have easily said, you know, let's, let's walk through this and let's think about this. But he said, no, let's deal with this issue. He destroys barriers. Listen to me. We live in a culture that says partial obedience, disobedience is no big deal. It's a big deal. Because Jesus came to destroy barriers so that we could see his beauty and repent and tap into that joy. There's a man named Richard Niebuhr who said this in the 1950s, if I can get it right. He was a theologian. This is an incredible statement. He says, we live in a day when a God without wrath is saving a people without sin to bring them in a kingdom without judgment by the power of a Christ without a cross. It's a powerful statement. He says, because we don't believe that God judges people and because we don't believe people are sinful and because we don't believe the kingdom involves judgment, we don't see the beauty and glory of Jesus. And I'm saying that these things are big deals. So, so God calls us to repent, which means that I tap into the joy of knowing him as I walk in obedience to him, whether I'm coming to him for the first time or I've been walking with him for 40 or 50 years. He wants to give us hope and life and purpose. So there's a book called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. It's by C.S. Lewis. It's one of the Chronicles of Narnia. And in, in the book, there's a story about a boy, and his name is, Lewis starts off this incredible little book by saying, let me just read the first sentence. It's really good. There was once a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Eustace Clarence Scrub was a, not a likable guy. He was kind of a bratish kid. And so he gets together with some of his friends, and they go to this mythical kingdom of Narnia. And while he's in this mythical kingdom of Narnia, Eustace Clarence Scrub becomes self-consumed, arrogant, uncaring, and he turns into a dragon. And as he's a dragon and he sees his dragon life is not what he wants it to be, he wants to be a human once again, he wants to make things right. And so this is what happens. It's just a beautiful statement. He said, so the lion told me I must first undress myself. And I was just going to say that I couldn't undress myself because I didn't have any clothes on when I suddenly realized that dragons have a snaky sort of things called a skin. And so I thought, okay. I started scratching. And my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and deeper. And instead of scales coming off here and there, my whole skin peeled off. And there I stood and I looked and there was more skin. And so I did it again and again and again. And I still had horrible dragon skin. And then the lion said, you have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and I let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. And the only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked a scab, it hurts, but then you see your skin 
being restored. And he said, I was restored. But Aslan, the lion, had to do it. Self-improvement doesn't do it. Support groups do not do it. The only way to be made right with God is through the greatness and the glory of the cross of Jesus. And as we see that, we repent. Point four is this. I am very hopeful that I will see this rich young ruler in heaven. And I'll tell you two reasons why. The first is this. Even though he had it all together, I mean, he was rich, he was young, he was a ruler, he was socially accepted, he was on the society page, he was the toast of the town. Even though he had it all together, he ran, which was unusual in that culture, he ran and he knelt at the feet of Jesus. And, and, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, no one is really good except God alone. And he didn't come back with the rejoinder and said, oh, I misspoke. He stayed there. So it shows that he had a hunger in his heart, that his wealth and his youth and his social elitism couldn't handle. I think maybe the greatest sentence in the history of writing outside of the Bible was written by a man who died in 430 whose name is Augustine. And Augustine said this, the heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in thee, in God. The heart of man is restless until it finds its rest in God. There are people here today whose hearts are, they're, they're restless. And the rest comes as you come to Jesus, weary and heavy laden, and you take his yoke upon you and he gives you rest. You run to Jesus. The second reason I'm hopeful is that this man when Jesus said, you must sell everything you have and give to the poor, then you'll have treasures in heaven, and then follow me. The Bible says this. It says that he, he, dis, he went away disheartened and sorrowful because he had great possessions. He did not say, give me a break. I'm a tither. I do this. I do that. He didn't justify himself. He went away with a heart that was heaven. Hey, one version says his face fell in sorrow. When Jesus exposed his sin, he didn't give a rebuttal. He didn't do the self-justification thing. You see, listen, God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the reality of Jesus, his death and resurrection, and the outpoured Holy Spirit, is, has come to make us new creations, not nice people. And niceness is fine. But he wants us to be gracious and caring and broken and tender-hearted. He wants us to be people who, who, who weep for, with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, who have a vision to reach the world for the reality of Christ, who love people around us. He didn't come to make us just nice neighbors that don't, that don't violate the homeowners association rule book. He, he came to make us new creatures in Jesus who are men and women who love him. Just to be very honest, and, and I want you to get this. There are two international situations, among others, but there are two that weigh heavy on my heart today. Uh, one involves the Rohingya people of Burma. Uh, there's an article in the Wall Street Journal this week 
entitled Orders to Kill Rohingya Alleged. And it talks about some Burmese army officers who have come to Bangladesh and they said in 2017 we were part of a group that was ordered by our government to uproot and push the Rohingya people out of Burma into Bangladesh and that involved murdering many people, that involved torture, that involved abusing women, it involved a basic genocide. And we know that at least 720,000, hear that, 720,000 people have been pushed out of their homes, they've been there for centuries, in Burma, because they're not Buddhist, into Bangladesh. The other international situation is happening in China today. In China today, in the northwest area of China, in the middle of nowhere, kind of the Gobi Desert area, there's a group of people called the Uyghur people group. They're Muslims. And the Chinese government has put 1.5, about 1.5 million of these people into re-education camps so they can fit into the culture. And in these re-education camps, we know that there is genocidal killings. We know that there's an incredible abuse of women that, can, that I can't even speak of in church. We, we know that there is organ harvesting. They'll take live people and cut them open and take their organs out and then let them bleed out. That's going on right now in, in our world. It's really on the same par with Dachau and Auschwitz to a degree. And it breaks my heart. And I'm thankful that our State Department in both instances has spoken out strongly for those who are being oppressed. But here's my point. I'm thinking of a person that I know, several people, but this particular person is nice, kind, he's gracious. Like the rich young ruler, he could probably say, I haven't murdered anybody, adultery, yeah, I haven't all been there, but but I, I, I don't steal, I don't lie. I don't defraud people. I'm an honest businessman. And I think he's, his parents have long gone, but I think he honors their memory. So, so by, by graded on a, on a curve in our culture, he is a really nice guy. But he's told me I have no need for the reality of Jesus. I'm not there. I think Jesus was a good man, but I don't, I don't need any covering for my sin. Hear this. If a guard of the Uyghurs who committed unspeakable atrocities and a guard who pushed the Rohingya people out of Burma and this man, who's a wonderful man, culturally speaking, all died this Thursday at three o'clock Eastern Standard Time. They would all three go to eternal judgment, called hell. There's only one way to be saved, and that's through the work of Jesus on the cross for our sin. Do not fall prey to the cultural niceness that says God accepts people that really try hard. That's just so anti-biblical. It's all about the grace of Jesus, and I thank God that Jesus breaks through barriers, obliterates barriers, and I pray that if there are barriers in your life from coming to faith in Jesus, that God would blow those barriers up and show you the bleakness of your heart and your need for a Savior. I pray that Christian brothers and sisters, that that he would blow through our barriers and show us how we need to be repenting people so that we can tap into the glory and goodness and the joy that Jesus brings. We need to be repenting people. 
Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Um, it is such a joy to be with your people. Thank you that more people are coming out. I have really, I've seen so many people this morning I haven't seen in six months, and it's cheered my heart to overflowing. Thank you for calling us to be the body of Christ and to be in each other's lives and to walk with each other. So thank you, thank you, thank you for this day. Lord, by the power that you bring, Holy Spirit, break through our barriers. Uh, break through barriers of unbelief, break through barriers of indifference. Do not let us approach the same stratagem of ecclesiology as a church at Ec uh, Laodicea that says, I'm wealthy, I'm rich, I've got it all together, I really am here, but I don't really need Jesus. God forgive us. We say today strongly, apart from you, we can do nothing. So come, Holy Spirit, make the name of Jesus strong in our midst. In Christ's name, amen.